From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Agencies can post detail and temporary job assignments related to COVID-19 on a new website from the Office of Personnel Management. Acting Director Michael Regas says the COVID-19 surge response program will give agencies flexibilities to move employees where agencies need them most. OPM's published a memorandum of understanding template for moving an employee. The Air Force's top acquisition official says his department's in quote a wartime acquisition posture to fight the coronavirus. Assistant Secretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics Will Roper says the Air Force's acquisition task force has four lines of effort. Breaking Defense reports those lines are relief, resilience, recovery and rapidity for small business. Today's the first day an evacuation notice is in effect at the Internal Revenue Service. The Chief Human Capital Officer at IRS, Robin Bailey Jr., and Deputy Kevin McIver write to employees that any employee who can work remotely, whether they have a telework agreement or not, should do so. Federal News Network reports the memo from Bailey and McIver says employees who have to do their jobs in the office will get more guidance from their managers. The National Commission on National Military and Public Service has recommendations for public service. The commission's done two and a half years of research to reach its recommendations for elevating all forms of service. Deborah Wada is vice chair of the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service. Deborah, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What's the main mission of your commission and what do you want people to take away from the work that you've now completed? The mission of the commission was to look at how we can inspire all Americans to serve, whether in military, national, or public service, and to determine whether we still needed the selective service system and whether we should modernize it for the 21st century. I think what the commission would like to see uh, that the American public takes away is that service is ingrained in us and that it is important to our communities and our state and our nations um, that we reinvigorate our, our a sort of DNA for service across this country. How did you go about evaluating all of the different kinds of public service, examining each of them and determining strengths and weaknesses to come to the recommendations that you found? So the commission took a very holistic look at this. We went through nine census regions. We spent um, time in over 42 cities, 22 states. We met with um, over 500 organizations. We held both public hearings and public meetings uh, last year. And uh, we continue to receive public comments on our website, over 4,000, uh, 4,300 actually, uh, comments that we received from the American public. Your background includes work on Capitol Hill and in the Pentagon. What's your takeaway given your areas of, of expertise about what you learned, what the commission learned as a whole? You know, I think I, I took away two things. One is that service, uh, the different lines of service, are act, there's actually more similarities than differences, and that we need to do more in terms of educating our, our citizens on not only the rights they have as citizens, but their responsibilities. So one of the things the commission found when it went across this country, and that was brought to us in most every meeting that we had with the communities of 
was that we need to do more to educate individuals about civics in this country. And so we talked about it in our interim report in January, but the commission took a strong look at where we are in civics, sort of what is being asked of young students today and what we think we need for the 21st century. What did you find, what, what are you recommending that, that Congress do in particular or that the executive branch do in particular to contribute to that concept of improved understanding of how things work? We uh, actually, this is the only place in our um, proposal that we actually recommend the government, federal government, put financial resources against it. We asked for about 450 million, both for uh, civics education and learning, and also for service learning, a 250 million. We believe it's important. The, currently, the federal government spends 5.3 billion dollars in STEM education and we spend $5 million on civics in our nation. It does seem like a little bit of a, of a misalignment there, uh, Deborah. What, what, do you, what would make it easier for people to serve? Are there things that different organizations, whether they're governmental or non-governmental organizations, could do to make it easier for people to come into any kind of public service, particularly into federal government service? It, there is, and what we found um, was that there are barriers, obviously, to service. We found that, you know, the three, we always talk about the three A's. We want to aspire people to serve, we want to create awareness to serve, and we want to create access to serve. And on the public service side, we found that access actually is one of the greatest barriers. Everywhere we went, we heard from especially the young um young adults who want to pursue a career in uh, service in the government, whether it's on the federal, state, local level, or tribal areas, wanted to get in. But on the federal level, at least, the hardest thing for them was to navigate USA jobs and to actually understand what is being asked of them. Um, so the commission took a holistic look at how can we improve our access to federal employment how do we make it easier, more transparent to people who are coming in? How do we make it fairer to those who have um, preferences, whether it's veterans' preferences, whether it's non-compete eligibility? And we looked at it holistically. So when we asked the Congress on our proposals to take a look at it, we asked them to look, look at it holistically because what we have done, we believe, is to make sure that we've enhanced service for everyone and helped to remove barriers to uh, pre provide a more transparent and fair process by which people can apply for jobs with the federal government. Deborah, we just have about 10 seconds left. What would you like to see happen next, particularly about that transparency and fairness for people who are trying to come into the federal government? We think that the administration can currently undertake some of our recommendations that we have made, but there are also recommendations that Congress would have to take a, um, action on. And uh, there are members of Congress, uh, the Four Country Caucus actually has introduced our legislative bill as a bill in Congress, and we hope that Congress will move forward on our legislative recommendations. Deborah, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you for having us. I appreciate the opportunity, Francis. Up next, breaking down the new stimulus deal. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where the money could go and how it impacts your agency. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The new stimulus deal from Congress would give federal agencies $340 billion for their responses to the coronavirus pandemic. It includes funding for medical equipment, telework expansion, and hazard pay for employees who interact with the public routinely. Jack Fitzpatrick's congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. Jack, thanks for coming on the program. What do you see in this bill specifically for government agencies? Uh, across the board, there's a, a lot of money there for uh, IT needs. That would include telework expansion and that kind of thing. There's a lot of uh, money, really probably dozens of mention, uh, mentions of money for cleaning and disinfecting office spaces uh, and uh, also public areas. Uh, aside from that sort of across the board uh, pot of money, uh, as you hinted at, there's there's money for hospital expansion. Um, some of the obvious areas, there's a lot of money for the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, in areas where they're ramping up hiring, uh, there's money to support that. But even for agencies that you wouldn't necessarily think have a direct role in the coronavirus, there's money just to kind of keep things operating. What's your sense? What do we know from the text of the bill about whether the money, for example, at HHS is going to HHS operations and service provision and what of it is grants to go to grantees? Same thing in VA. I imagine a lot of their money is going directly into the health system, the VHA. Um, but they may have uh, some grantee work too. And of course, there's the controversy about community care in VA. Right, uh, so overall, when you hear that $340 billion number, most of that is gonna end up going to state or local governments uh, or, or somehow get into a community rather than just being for the agency itself to operate, I believe. 270 billion or so of that is going to end up going through state or local governments. Um, so a, a lot of money is going to go to uh, to paying paying doctors, ramping up hospital capacity. Uh, there's a significant chunk of money for uh, community care at the VA, as you mentioned. So most of this is, is if not a grant, something that is passing through a, a state or local government. And passing through is exactly what I'm getting at, how much of the money is sticking at the federal level and how much of it is being given to the agencies to distribute at a lower level. On the IT stuff, uh, Jack, I'm, I'm interested in this because some of these things appear to be things that agencies have been asking for for years. We need to build this infrastructure to be able to do whatever thing. In this case, it happens to be telework, and it strikes me that now that Congress sees, yeah, this is a real thing and not just something kind of amorphous, um, that it's gotten serious about it. Am I reading that right, do you think, Jack? You may be reading that right. That's an interesting point. Uh, you know, a lot of the mentions in the bill text refer to information technology needs that relate to the coronavirus, but you can't really necessarily put the toothpaste back in the tube. If they ramp up their capacity technologically to have more people uh, working remotely, we see a, a great number of people at, at certain agencies like uh, the Social Security Administration who are gonna be working remotely 
once they have that capacity, if it's something they needed anyway, uh, this would at least nudge them in that direction. Even if it's not a permanent change, there are a lot of administrative ways that that uh, this could get rolled back. It's not that people will permanently be working from home, uh, but this gives a lot of agencies the resources, including agencies that don't have a lot to do with the coronavirus just for safety purposes. Mm -hmm. You've got Social Security workers, uh, Department of Energy, this and that, with uh, people working remotely, and, and now the resources are there. Yeah, the biggest challenge that uh, IT pros are telling me inside the government over the last couple of weeks has been the infrastructure, especially agencies where the infrastructure is pretty old, uh, to be able to handle the amount of people that are teleworking now. And those are exactly the kinds of investments they've been asking for for a number of years, not specifically for telework, but just to kind of upgrade. Do we know from the text of the bill how much is like infrastructure type stuff and how much is individual employee telework type stuff or is that not clear in the way the bill's written jack that is not spelled out specifically in the way the bill is written you're right to raise that broad issue of uh, it's not just about telework but the strain on the IT capacity the bill itself generally in most instances is giving money uh, to these agencies for IT needs. So telework is an example, uh, but if they have uh, other needs related to that, this essentially funds those IT needs and, and leaves a lot at the discretion of the agency to figure out how they work that. About 30 seconds left, Jack. What are you going to follow moving forward on this bill? Well, I'm honestly turning my attention to the next bill. There's clearly going to need to be another bill. There's a lot of talk about grand plans uh, for an infrastructure package for the economy, but also we've heard uh, Nancy Pelosi say there inevitably will be issues with this bill that need to be solved. Uh, so whether it's the economic effects or even some of the logistics on how agencies are operating, uh, we don't know exactly when, but there will need to be a fourth bill that tweaks some things. Jack Fitzpatrick of Bloomberg Government, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me. Up next, the Defense Production Act and the fight against the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the DPA means for vendors. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. President Trump has talked about using the Defense Production Act to get test kits and face masks during the coronavirus pandemic, but he hasn't invoked it yet. He says he's saving the option for a worst-case scenario. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, thanks very much for coming on. What does the, the Defense Production Act mean, and what would happen if the president decided he wanted to invoke it in a particular case or more broadly? Sure. There's uh, actually a bunch of moving parts with respect to the Defense Production Act, but the, the two most common things we actually think about are that the government gets priority for certain orders that they place over commercial orders or even other priority orders, depending on the priority rating a, 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 an order is given. And the second thing is the government can come in and make investments in uh, different things such as production lines. Uh, they can give loans to uh, contractors to help encourage certain kinds of production. So those are the two most common things that we see with the Defense Production Act and uh, what we would expect to see uh, if the president invokes it. 
So we've seen a number of companies that are in a variety of industries saying we're going to stop production for a few, however long it takes, and we're going to produce ventilators. If companies were not willing to do that voluntarily, it sounds like that's the kind of place where President Trump could say, no, you're going to stop doing what you're doing and manufacture this instead. Am I reading it right? Am I hearing you correctly, Eric? Absolutely. If the government feels that the production of what they need is not sufficient and the natural kind of marketplace is not allowing for sufficient number of respirators and, and, uh, and different kinds of health products that are really in need right now, that's the time that uh, we'll really see the president kind of invoke the Defense Production Act. We don't know that they haven't used it yet um, because it's possible there are contracts out there that have ratings in it that we just haven't heard about as well. So um, I know there's been a lot of attention on the use or non-use of it, but the Defense Production Act has been used over the years um, fairly consistently by the government. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are contracts out there that are rated, um, uh, that, are, that contractors are perfor actually performing. What, what's your sense of what that dialogue means, Eric? You're right. There's been a lot of discussion back and forth in a lot of different uh, places and a lot of different people saying we should invoke it, he should, or he should invoke it, he shouldn't invoke it, this and that and the other thing. Does that matter in the end, the, the mechanism by which the country gets the supplies that it needs? And what impact does that have on the companies, especially the government contractors, that might have to comply with, with such a decree? I mean, it matters somewhat because it makes sure the government gets goods um, before private industry gets it. Um, and even the government can prioritize their own needs within the government itself by giving certain orders a higher rating than other, other orders or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the production capabilities of contractors are what they are. So um, invoking the Defense Production Act, unless the government helps them build uh, production facilities to create more masks, to create more respirators, isn't going to wave a magic wand uh, necessarily. So uh, for contractors, it, it obviously creates some stress, uh, the invocation, because they have to prioritize the, the orders from the government above other commercial orders maybe they are already performing on or the performance is expected on. So for instance, if a company is, is providing a widget uh, to a commercial company pursuant to a commercial contract and the government comes in and says, we need those widgets first, then that, that other commercial contract is, is probably going to be breached unless the contractor has capability to, to fulfill both. Um, um, there is liability protection within the Defense Production Act, however, that allows um, uh, any kind of lawsuits by a commercial customer, an unhappy commercial customer, to, to be turned back. And to be clear, that the Defense Production Act is not just for defense articles. It's been expanded through the years to include things such as health articles, which is what we're seeing it used for or potentially used for now. I want to change gears for a minute because uh, there are a number of agencies that are changing some of their procurement provisions in order to meet this. Uh, VA, GSA raising the micro-purchase threshold and other things like that. What, what does that mean, Eric, and what can agencies do and what can individuals do within the agencies that they couldn't do before? So what it really means is that the, the government can buy things more easily. Uh, the micro-purchase threshold, which was $3,500 until recently, and now it was expanded for most agencies to $10,000, and now in an emergency situation can be $20,000, allows um, procurement to happen much quicker and without the normal clauses that you see uh, that can potentially weigh a procurement down. Same thing with the simplified acquisition threshold. Uh, you have simplified acquisition procedures, which are much more streamlined, and now the threshold is higher. So the government can buy things a lot quicker and without some 
some competitive measures and uh, also just without having to worry about certain compliance issues. So to allow these products that the government desperately needs right now to get in the hands of the agencies much quicker. Think ahead with me for a minute, Eric, to the end of this pandemic crisis. Any of these provisions that are changing now because of the crisis that you think are likely to stick around, the raising of the micro-purchase uh, micro threshold or any of the provisions that are included in the DPA that legally, legislatively would have to change, but might be interested, that somebody might be interested in changing? Sure, I, I could potentially see the micro-purchase threshold, um, there being some kind of steam behind keeping that at a higher number of $20,000 and maybe even the simplified acquisition threshold a little bit higher because the government will really like the fact that they can buy things in a more streamlined process. Also, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see um, maybe some kind of modified uh, DPA where the government can give itself priority to stockpile certain goods and services or goods especially um, in an event that something like this happens again. So we may see some movement in that area. But overall, I think, the, you know, government contracting is often weighed down and, and not wrongfully so necessarily, but often weighed down by a lot of rules and regulations that contractors have to follow. And the government might start like, may start liking more, even more than the Section 09 panel showed them, the lack of restrictions that, that they have with these higher levels. Eric Crucius, thanks very much as always, my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rivers. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.